Hey, it's Ross from Reversing Climate Change. I wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's short form, it's timely, and it's all about carbon removal. Whenever we see a good news story about carbon removal, or that should be about carbon removal, we're going to record a short episode about it with a rotating cast of guests. So please subscribe to Carbon Removal Newsroom, check it out in your podcast app of choice, and thank you so much for your support. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I am Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe. No, Paul, again, we're traveling alone in Kansas with an old buddy of mine. We've been cruising through Kansas. It is starkly beautiful here. The grays, the browns, the the trees without their leaves. It's unlike Seattle. Seattle, you know, evergreen. So it's been a new experience for us. It's really beautiful out here on the plains. I've been enjoying it. Me too. We caught a beautiful sunset up at Coronado Heights yesterday. Had an amazing farm tour from the Peterson Farm Bros. Also, if you don't know of them, check out their YouTube page. They are quite musical. They do parodies uh, of popular songs, but about agriculture. And we sort of landed there by accident. But uh, yeah, they're, they're good friends to have. I feel like it is the beginning of a budding relationship there. Well, let's cut off on the bicker banter. Without any further ado, I we have two guests, which is super exciting, and we will do our best to be able to amplify both of their perspectives, both of which I think are very important. Sitting across from us, we've got Fred Yudsey. He's the president and CEO of Land, the Land Institute, and Tim Cruz, who is the director of research and ecologist at the Land Institute. And Fred and Tim, we like to start with people's stories, the origin of how they got to where they are and sort of why it is that they're working on the things they are today. And so let's start with you, Fred. How did it all get going for you? Yeah, well, first of all, welcome here to the Land Institute. I have been president of this organization for about two and a half years at this point. Um, my first visit here uh, to Salina, Kansas, to this very building that we're in, I was about oh, 21 years old, and I had heard a little bit, I'd read a little bit about the work of this, uh, this crazy geneticist, Wes Jackson, uh, who'd founded uh, an organization out on the Kansas prairies to completely transform agriculture, to perennialize it, and uh, stopped in and uh, was given a, a warm welcome and have been hooked ever since. Part of the writings of uh, Wes Jackson and and others in this movement have uh, laid down, uh, have included an emphasis on homecoming and on bringing kind of a a restoring an agrarian sensibility to culture and agriculture. And so I uh, was motivated by some of that writing actually to move back to the family farm in West Central Illinois, uh, where my brother and I are the eighth generation, uh, my kids uh, later were the ninth generation to live in, in that rural area. And then so it was uh, it was sort of ironic that having moved home to Illinois because of the Land Institute, uh, 11 years after that move, I moved away from home to the Land Institute to take this position. And so uh, my life has been kind of following these different threads uh, of what a new kind of 
stable, wholesome agricultural future will, will look like on planet Earth. Have you been able to become native to this place? Well, I, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see on my uh, Twitter profile, it says uh, first generation Kansan, eighth generation Illinois. I saw that. It's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's another multi-threaded thing. Yeah, definitely. And why don't we uh, introduce you, uh, Tim? Tell us about your backstory. <clears throat> right. Well, um, I stopped by at about the same age that Fred did, but I'm a little older than Fred. I was around 21 when I stopped by back in 1980, 81. And um, I'd read New Roots for Agriculture in uh, an agroecology class, Steve Gleesman's class at UC Santa Cruz. And that set the stage for a lifelong interest. I went to graduate school at Cornell and Laura Jackson, Wes Jackson's daughter, was in my department. And we interacted a fair amount and talked about the Land Institute there. I taught at Prescott College in Northern Arizona for 18 years in an agroecology program before coming to the Land Institute in 2012. And I'd bring students out here uh, and participate in the Graduate Fellows Program over the years that Fred was a part of. At a certain point, though, uh, I just realized that this was the transformative work that superseded all other, uh, in, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I looked at a lot of things going on in sustainable agriculture, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. But nothing was as transformative as the work that the Land Institute is going after from my perspective. And so I moved here and uh, am enjoying it. What is the, the mandate of the Land Institute? I've read a fair amount of Wes Jackson, and I know uh, Wendell pops his head in from time to time and has been affiliated in some capacity to what are you working on? What I know you've dropped a couple of hints there about perennializing agriculture. We want to get into that. I know there's also a social mission too. What's that? No, it's just I, we love defining terms. What does perennialize even mean? Yeah, maybe that's a good place to start. Right. Well, we'll start with maybe the literal and the, the proximate that a perennial plant is one that regrows from year to year without needing to be reseeded, which is a stark difference in life history strategy from the grain crops uh, that underpin our agriculture today, which are annuals that live for one year uh, and a whole new individual plant has to grow from a seed. And of course, this difference, uh, while it sounds kind of uh, botany wonky uh, here, a little uh, bit, on, yeah. on this difference, civilizations have risen and fallen uh, over the millennia, right? That perennial vegetation is what has covered the earth for the vast majority of the history of higher life forms on this planet. Perennial vegetation uh, like prairies, like forests, is what has, uh, has over the course of time gradually built up our rich soils. It's what has uh, given us uh, this bequest of clean water uh, that uh, we have to to use or or spoil, basically what has built you know this uh, amazingly fertile planet that we're on. Annuals have, uh, relatively speaking, have a bit part on the ecological stage, coming in after disturbance, uh, uh, after the volcano erupts or whatnot. And here we have over ten thousand years gone and decided to base our agriculture just on those, which has a variety of negative consequences for soil and, and the rest of the ecosphere. And so that's sort of the literal. The more figurative, uh, I think, is uh, that we need to aim for a culture that rather than luring us away from decisions that are respectful and regenerative for the planet uh, and respectful and regenerative for each other, rather than having a culture that draws us away from that to sort of convenience and short-term thinking, uh, 
We need to have the kind of culture, the kind of institutions that draw us back to what is sustainable and just, right? So that's maybe a figurative perennial. So, okay, I think we'll say for the more social, the life of rural communities, going back to the land, that that whole thing for a bit later, but digging in farther into this perennial agriculture, why, why hasn't this happened? Why were annuals selected for agriculture, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago? How did we get to this point? <laughs> Well, it's a good question. And I think it's it's important to point out that to maintain annual agriculture uh, until relatively recently, uh, we have had to disturb the soil tremendously every year. We plow, we cultivate, we need to wipe out all of the what is typically perennial vegetation that was in in place in order to plant our annual crops. And then the cousins of our annual crops, which are called weeds, come in. And they are very happy to grow alongside the crops. And so we wipe them out too. And so this killing everything on the landscape on an annual basis is the ecological disaster of annual agriculture. And with it comes soil erosion, loss of organic matter, loss of nutrients, weeds, you know, all all of these, these issues that are individually dealt with in sustainable agriculture programs around the world. But they happen to be kind of derivatives of this one choice we made, and that is to grow annuals. And so the question is, why? Why did we do that? And uh, we have folks here that have thought long and hard about that question. And there's many answers. And we've written papers. If people are interested in going on our website, they can download those. They're fairly scientific. But there's some real basic reasons. There's, there are some differences between perennials and annuals in that, for example, young perennials tend to take a little bit longer to establish and their seedlings are typically not quite as competitive initially. So like an annual has to get there real quick. Yeah. It has a small window. Yeah. And you plant a wheat seed and it pops up and it puts out a big, you know, cotyledon or initial leaf and can grow fairly quickly. And perennials tend to be a little bit slower to establish. Okay. And if you think about it, if there were perennials that were producing seed you know, 8,000 years ago, and and some Neolithic farmers looked at that plant, they would know that it regrows year after year. They were undoubtedly keen natural historians paying attention to what was growing. They did not have to replant that plant. And they didn't know that, in fact, the act of replanting, that killing it, which is hard, and then replanting it would select for certain traits they wouldn't know that, right? And so why kill it and replant it if it's regrowing? And it's it was the actual act of harvesting annual seeds, replanting them, harvesting them again, replanting them, that, for example, selected on the trait of what we call non-shattering. You get plants that used to drop most of their seed at the end of the growing season, which is what wild plants tend to do. And just the act of collecting and re-sowing and collecting and re-sowing will select for non-shattering traits. So it's it's a little bit tricky to think about, but just the act of doing it developed a crop and you would never have done that with a perennial. Is it just because with annuals, there are so many generations, it's one per year. It's just faster to be selected various traits. Correct. And if, if there was a perennial that produced some seed that was harvested, you just wouldn't be making that selection, picking the same perennial plant year after year. 
That makes sense. And then so we've just become path dependent. We've started down this road and then you have uh, much larger seeds for grains and it's just easier just to go with annuals at that point. Well, once annual crops were developed, for example, for non-shattering, which is a huge deal, you would get, say you went from 10% of the plants that don't drop their seed at the end of the year to 90% of the plants that don't drop their seed at the end of the year. You've done nothing to increase yield. You've done nothing to change the plant other than it holds on to its seed. But your food value of the work that you put in to grow those plants, it's gone up tremendously to go out and collect that seed. And once you got that energy in that grain, you have all sorts of people who are dependent on it. You've gone down that road and there's no turning back. So you guys have given so much juicy bait here. I can't contain the metaphors that I want to just, just do. So. Christoph is master of the malaphor. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, Fred, you were an Illinois seed that flew through the wind and then laid your roots here and became a perennial at the Land Institute. But you guys are talking about a lot of the science around perennials and also bring up some of the social elements that you need to change. And I want to really get back to the Land Institute and the sort of mandate that where you guys find yourselves and the theory of change, if you will, kind of why is the Land Institute doing what it's doing, but then how does it go about doing it? And I kind of want to color this with something, a comment that was made yesterday on the farm tour around weeds, which is a thing of pride. Like farmers don't want weeds in their field, not necessarily because the weeds are bad, but because it looks bad and you don't want people speaking poorly about about your land. So it's almost like, yes, there are these scientific elements, but there are these social elements too. So what's the theory of change for the Land Institute? Well, the Land Institute was started uh, in 1976 with a dream and not a whole lot else. There was uh, a lot of passion from our founders, Wes and Dana Jackson, and the first few people uh, that sort of fell in uh, alongside them. Uh, and things have kind of gone from there. This was uh, a big, crazy dream. Well, it's still a big, crazy dream. It was a sort of the voice in the wilderness kind of crazy dream for decades. But the Land Institute doggedly ignored the idea that uh, a little nonprofit in a little known part of a Midwestern state couldn't challenge uh, the dominant paradigm, uh, ignored that idea, ignored the idea that you can't do agricultural research without massive resources uh, and ignored the idea that you can't bring in the best scientific talent to a, a little makeshift institution uh, out in the center of the country. And through kind of this grit over time, we have demonstrated uh, that the scientific principles behind this notion of a perennial polyculture grain crop agriculture are sound. We have accumulated resources, um, you know, to where uh, what we're doing is, you know, recognizable as an agricultural research facility to people. Uh, and we've gotten to proof of concept with this idea. You know, today, there are two different perennial grain crops that have been part of our efforts that are in kind of a really early beta test uh, kind of a stage in very limited scale commercial production. So part of this story is uh, kind of building up 
from just this tiny germ to a, a situation where we've achieved something. Now, on the other hand, when we look at how agricultural research is done, um, you know, if you tally up all of the money that's spent annually around the world on plant breeding, on genetic crop improvement for annual grain crops, it's $10 billion uh, a year, very roughly, billion with a B. If you look at all of the funds that are spent on perennial grain crop breeding, not annual, but perennial grain crop breeding, that's still not $10 million, uh, quite yet, with an M. And so... On the other hand, the work that we've done here uh, in some ways represents the initial kind of inventor laboring in the garage kind of, of phase, right? And so now we've taken the world by storm with these kind of prototype perennial grain crops in terms of capturing people's attention. And now is the time uh, for the work to really branch out. When I first visited here uh, almost 20 years ago, the circle of research collaborators that the Land Institute had certainly could be counted on two hands. You, you might not get very far into the second hand worth of fingers. Uh, today, we have over 40 research collaborators around the world on six continents, growing interest from other research entities and a you know, gradually growing funding base, what we need to do is to keep kind of riding this, um, you know, this trend line up so that we can actually, as a, a society, as a civilization, actually invest you know, this grand perennial grand project uh, as if the future of the species depends on it, which of course we certainly think over the long haul it does. So that's, um, you know, that's a little bit of the trajectory here. And you are trying to do this and you, you drop some terms here about what exactly these fields might look like. And driving across Kansas, we came from Kansas City is where we flew in from. Uh, I didn't see much of the native prairie. I didn't see much of the tall grass that is sort of famous from the frontier days. It seems like it's mostly taken up by annuals. A lot of corn, corn and bean rotation seem pretty common out there. You have this picture on, on the front of uh, West Jackson's Nature as Measure, and then I also saw it in the office. But the root depth of annuals is quite small, and perennials is quite deep, which is important for a number of reasons. But the, the overall thinking of the Land Institute is that we should be using nature as the measure of, of how to farm. We should be emulating how nature covers the soil and leaves the soil covered. And our agriculture sort of has sidestepped that. And over time, the consequences have become more and more severe. And so you've been trying to create commercially viable uh, methods of perennial grain production that can stand on its own merits, not for someone who just cares about the earth, but this actually might be a profitable way to do business. Is that Broadly correct. Yeah, when uh, when this work uh, comes to full fruition, um, you know, in time, that's that's definitely the aim. You know, we want uh, to do nothing short of transforming global grain crop agriculture into a perennial endeavor. We want perennial grain crops to displace annual grain crops uh, over the long haul. Now, there are many, many steps uh, to go in that process. Um, you know, as I said, we have achieved proof of concept here. We have a couple perennial grain crops uh, that are in really small scale, kind of a beta test, you know, commercial production. Uh, we've got several other perennial grain crops following behind them in the pipeline. This is the point where the work needs to scale up. Uh, so we don't need a couple perennial grain crops. We need uh, ultimately a dozen or more globally. Uh, we don't need these crop yields that are high enough that 
you know, now they represent crops, but still very low in every other respect. We need decent, substantial yield, and we need uh, productive stand life as a perennial, and we need ability to be intercropped with other perennial crops. And, and so that's why it's so very important that we keep this ball rolling, you know, that we keep this sort of, um, this sort of snowball effect going of uh, picking up kind of more and more people and resources in this global movement uh, here. I think we've, we've had some, right? We Kernza is an example of this. And we had some Kernza beer at the Perennial in San Francisco. Is that... It was pretty delicious. Yeah, I remember drinking yeah. that most yeah. of the evening. Long Root Ale. Long Root yeah, Ale, yeah. Right. Named. Well, I, and I just wanted to dovetail on what Fred was saying there in terms of how we even think about the development of these perennial crops. Perennial crops are not the end goal of the Land Institute. They are the, the hardware, the new hardware, if you will, from which we will now put together functional agroecosystems. And in doing that, we will try to achieve what's often referred to as ecological intensification. So much of our agriculture today has been successful because of input intensification. We've figured out how to capture nitrogen out of the air using lots of fossil fuels to do it, but it's highly effective to get synthetic urea and ammonia and put it on the crops and they grow beautifully. And so how do we reincorporate biological nitrogen fixation back into these cropping arrangements? How do we achieve weed suppression and pollination services and all the other things that come with the native ecosystem that used to be there? And so while people think of the Land Institute as being all about developing perennial grains, and, and we a tremendous amount of our resources are going into that because they don't really exist yet, and that's the work that hasn't been done. And yet, it really is the first step towards getting what we need then to put together really interesting agroecosystems that achieve a lot of the functions that our inputs achieve today, like fertilizers and herbicides and things like that. So I'm really glad that you used the term proof of concept, Fred. And I think it's interesting when you actually take a proof of concept through what is referred to as the technological S-curve. And oftentimes in technology from software or startups, people talk about the valley of death, right? You have this eureka moment. Aha, I figured it out. And then you need to prove it. And then you need to figure out how to take it to market. And it goes through all of these steps. And I, I find it fascinating. And I've been sort of stewing on this since coming to Kansas and thinking about demonstration test plots and all of these sort of large scale efforts. And in reading some of your papers, Tim, it's interesting to think, you know, you need these side by side experiments to prove a certain concept. But then it's like, but then what? How do you scale it up? So this is a multi-layered question, but could you talk a little bit about test plots and how that works? And then some of the challenges of taking a proof of concept to the scale of your ambitions, which is ultimately kind of the world, I think. To put one more layer on the question, some of the pitfalls that ideas might face along the way from idea to full scale, where in a San Francisco restaurant drinking uh, long root ale... Yeah, well, let me, uh, I'll take a, a piece of this and then Tim can layer on. So the the sort of the, the valley of death for this work would be any sense that people have that, okay, so we've got this crop Kernza, it's in a few products nationally and, you know, a few specialized grocery stores. 
uh, okay, now we can declare victory. You know, now this, um, the work of the Land Institute, the grand vision of West Jackson is complete. Really, it's the opposite. Now the real work actually starts, right? Now that we've sort of validated that it's possible for such a thing as a perennial grain crop to exist in the world, now we need to go the rest of the distance and breed perennial crops that have the yield and the other characteristics uh, and, and do the ecological research to develop the highly biodiverse cropping systems that will provide all of the ecological functionality we need and will also be viable for farmers to raise, viable uh, to go into the food system. And so, you know, this is the moment where society really needs to double down on this vision. Uh, and so we have to tread carefully to, on the one hand, not to undersell the dramatic nature of the progress that's been made and the milestones that we've achieved. On the other hand, not to oversell the concept uh, that, hey, all we need to do now is uh, to scale the production. We don't need to scale the production right now. We need to scale the research, we need to scale the R&D uh, to get to the point where it's time to, to scale production. Yeah, and I guess uh, a couple of examples with Kernza of running into scaling up issues is uh, on smaller research plots, under the eyes of the researchers, we're able to establish Kernza pretty uh, predictably. And yet, if you're a grower with you, the equipment that you have on your farm, uh, your wheat grower, corn grower up in Minnesota, and you try to uh, establish a field of Kernza, you're probably going to run into some challenges that we haven't even imagined yet. And so that's happened. There's been many crop failures. Lee DeHaan, the, the lead Kernza breeder here, predicts about 50% crop failure. But every crop has its failures. It's just trying to establish a perennial crop is a little more challenging for reasons I spoke of earlier with the with the seedling vigor, it tends not to be as robust. Some of the people that have grown Kernza the best are folks up in Minnesota who specialize in growing perennial grass seed. <laughs> so that was a great group to contract with initially to produce Kernza seed. Similarly, in, in developing an intercrop system with alfalfa, we have done it on small plots. We have interns that go in and cut those alfalfa strips on those small plots, but we now have a 16-acre field in Lawrence, Kansas with an intercrop Kernza alfalfa and we had to have a piece of equipment custom produced in Canada to mow that alfalfa in between those currents of rows. And we're about to have growers in Kansas, Wisconsin, and Minnesota plant intercrop fields. And honestly, we don't know how that legume is going to be managed in between those. And that's part of what the, the ambitious experiment is. This is a SARA research grant from the USDA, where we're going to try to solicit farmer know-how in figuring out how to deal with that intercropped legume and maximize its nitrogen contribution to the system. But these are the, these are challenges in scaling up from what are very successful little uh, 20 by 20 research plots. <laughs> and it should be noted, of course, the farmers involved in the initiative that Tim was talking about and, and the farmers who are doing commercial production so far, these are people who are going into this clear-eyed. Oh, know, yeah. They, they're, uh, in some cases, are collaborators in a specific research project. In other cases, they're, you know, using a minority of their farming acres to grow this uh, because they see themselves as doing a public service and helping this transition happen, or because they simply 
uh, they want to be well positioned when some years down the line, Kerns and other perennial grain crops are, are actually truly ready for production. You know, they want to be the people who experience already in, in growing them. And so it's definitely not a situation where, uh, you know, where we want to, or, or farmers should go out and, and think they should be planting the whole farm to this stuff because <laughs> uh, this is still this is the bleeding edge and and it's you know it's for people who uh, who want to be in on that at this stage you wouldn't bet the farm on it you, <laughs> you could say you, you might to use a, a turn of phrase yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious how this works with if you have a diverse field where you have many things growing at the same time I see conventional like monoculture agriculture as being similar to James C. Scott's criticism of modernism as being this like able to be viewed from the center everything is nicely ordered it has the appearance of orderliness but not necessarily i mean it creates its own disorder in its wake but then how do you have fields that have multiple crops growing alongside each other and are interspersed potentially how do you harvest that in a way that's legible it seems uh much more uh cognitively difficult to manage this how does this work or am i or am i overthinking that a little bit well there's no question that the monocrop landscapes that we see today are that way to a significant degree because they are easy to harvest and easy to manage with mechanization. And so there will need to be some new equipment developed, but we don't see that as being a, a challenge at all, really. I mean, there's there, the technology already exists to sort seeds of different sizes and colors in ways that did not exist 20 years ago. So there's a technological component, but there's also a cropping systems component as well. And so designing cropping systems where you either have seeds maturing at almost exactly the same time versus at really different times in the growing season, these are challenges that the agroecologists are going to have down the stretch. But it is useful to point out that most grain agricultural systems, not all, but most pre-industrial times were quite diverse. And so diverse agroecosystems have been around. They just weren't perennial. And so we have we have some new challenges for sure. But uh, so one might say that if there are any types of problems that we have excellent capacity to solve in our society, it's designing new products with a clever combination of steel and plastic and microprocessors to achieve uncanny feats of handling materials and information, right? Which is to say that the harvesting equipment challenge is actually relatively modest compared to the biological endeavor of coming up with these systems. You know, we have a pretty good sense that our really, really large and well-funded and innovative agricultural machinery sector in in this country and in the world is is up to the challenge of figuring out how to harvest this stuff. The other thing that could be said is that while we're on the road to kind of prairie-like polycultures that we ultimately aspire to, there are other kind of intermediate biodiversity steps to use uh, on the way, uh, like having alternating strips of, of, of several different crops, right, that would, uh, would combine at the kind of the beta diversity, the kind of field uh, within field scale diversity, get some good effects out of that, but still be compatible with equipment that, that currently exists. I'm satisfied with that. I wanted to move us to a bit on climate change because we are the reversing climate change podcast. I'm contractually obligated to bring it back to that topic whenever possible. Uh, where do perennial crops fit into climate change? How might they affect one another? 
No small questions here. Yeah, well, yeah. Th thanks for asking that because it is something that we think a lot about and, and actually have a fair amount of confidence that as perennial grain crops come into production, they will have a better chance of replacing the soil carbon that was lost when the prairie or the forest or the savanna or whatever ecosystem was converted to annual agriculture lost in the conversion. It helps to think a little bit about why agriculture has lost so much soil organic matter. Oh, soil organic matter is really a balance, an equilibrium that is not static, is a balance between inputs through plant productivity and the death of the crop, the residue that goes into the soil on the one hand, and then the microbes that eat those residues and breathe out CO2. They respire out that carbon. And so you have losses because of microbial respiration and you have gains because of plant productivity, right? So when we converted the, say, the prairie, which is overwhelmingly perennial, has all these deep roots that put tremendous amount of carbons directly into the soil. So high inputs. When we killed off the prairie and we plowed the soil, we greatly reduced the amount of carbon going into the soil by roots. And roots are particularly important when it comes to building stable soil organic matter. So we, we replaced plants that put some 40 to 60% of their energy or their carbon into the soil, perennials, with annual crops that put maybe 15 to 25 percent of their energy into the soil as carbon. Okay, so we have reduced inputs with that conversion from perennial to annual. Meanwhile, we go and we disturb the soil with tillage with, by plowing it and cultivating it. That breaks up these aggregates that protect soil organic matter in the soil. And when you break those up and all this oxygen and moisture pours in and the organic matter is not as protected by clay minerals, microbes just go nuts. And you have incredible rates of microbial consumption of organic matter after tillage and you can see it these days with modern uh, carbon monitoring equipment. If you convert a prairie and measure the carbon dioxide coming off that field, it's incredible. It's a huge pulse. And that's carbon loss. So by converting the prairie to annual agriculture, you reduce the inputs of carbon and you increase the losses. And that's pretty much the state of that ecosystem as long as you keep it in annual crop production and you keep tilling it every year. You're going to hit a new low of soil organic matter in that ecosystem because of that conversion. So most of the ways in which we're thinking about improving soil carbon these days affect either the inputs of plant productivity, I should say, or the respiration losses. So if you plant cover crops in an organic system and you insert a crop in the winter where there was not one before, you've just increased the amount of carbon being added to that ecosystem. So you're likely to get a little bump in soil organic matter because you're improving. Or if you add manure or something, then you're bolstering the carbon input. Meanwhile, if you do no-till, then you've actually reduced the respiration losses because you're keeping those soil aggregates intact. You're not disturbing the soil. So the microbes are not quite as happy as they are when you till, and therefore they're not respiring as much. 
in perennial agriculture, and, and arguably almost only in perennial agriculture, we're trying to remake the ecosystem that was there that built that soil organic matter in the first place. And so by going from a annual crop that allocates relatively small amounts of carbon below ground to a perennial crop, you improve the inputs and you decrease the losses because of microbial respiration since you're not disturbing the soil. And it's because of that that this approach to recapturing solar organic matter holds incredible promise. So you've talked about soil organic matter. We're thinking at Nori a lot about soil organic carbon. I know that when they both go up, it's a good sort of proxy. But what's the difference? Well, I use them almost entirely interchangeable. Soil organic matter is of greater interest to farmers because... The other parts of organic matter that are not carbon matter a lot because like nitrogen and phosphorus and all this other good stuff. But essentially, soil organic matter is about 58% carbon. And so when you're capturing soil organic matter, you're actually also capturing soil organic carbon. It's useful to note that it requires a lot of nitrogen though. And I mean, that soil organic matter is made up of nitrogen too, because in order to build stable soil organic matter, you need nitrogen. And that's often, that can be a limiting factor in terms of how much soil carbon you can accumulate. Because in order to build soil organic carbon, you have to also have nitrogen going in and being locked away in that total soil organic matter pool. Do you think the annual cropping system has served uh, rural communities and small towns well? Do you think this might be a way to improve what seems to be a dying culture? What do we What do we do about the state of rural you're, America? You're really priming there, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read enough to prime a little bit. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So it's, um, you know, I'll go back to this uh, metaphor here. So we work with literal perennials. Uh, we would literally want crops to be perennial. Uh, metaphorically, we want to have perennial uh, community life. We want to have communities, uh, neighborhoods, uh, institutions that are self-perpetuating, self-sustaining, self-correcting over time. And what we have seen, and this is around the world, but it's especially vivid uh, here in North America because history of our current you know, dominant culture is so short in this place. We have seen boom and bust in rural and urban areas alike that is uh, only correctable uh, where we intervene drastically, you know, with some kind of government program, some kind of private reinvestment scheme to bring population back to bolster communities. And when we can correct something, it only sticks uh, for a while. And then we have another cycle of decline and chaos until the next correction. And, and so in that way, our community life is kind of like our agriculture, right? It's based fundamentally on disturbance and, and intervention. You know, something, you know, concrete uh, to put to that would be uh, the county that I grew up in, in rural Illinois, the story of kind of rural decline uh, that's told there uh, about rural areas is well illustrated that my home county has lost population in every U.S. census since 1910, right? Wow. So that's, you know, so you can map to that. Well, there's modern agriculture and privatization, corporatization of agriculture taking rural areas down. If you expand your scope a little bit, you can see that that county gained population in every U.S. census up until 1910, 
right? So it's not like we ever had a stable equilibrium uh, in terms of population, in terms of community life, in terms of local economies. Uh, we have a boom and a bust cycle. And much like we need a new agriculture to take us out of the endless exploitation and depletion of soils uh, cycle, we need a new sensibility uh, around culture and economics to take us out of this boom and bust cycle of people. So we think these, uh, these things, this new agriculture and this new culture are interrelated, not only conceptually, but they're also interdependent uh, in terms of implementation, that if we can come up with the perfect hardware and software for a new agriculture and sort of lay them on you know, society's doorstep, the pretty bow uh, on top, there's little expectation that uh, anything good or anything in terms of full adoption will ever be made of that. At the same time, if we achieve the ultimate just equitable society and we're still steadily losing our soil a little bit at a time every year, the outcome is going to be bad no matter how right we are with each other. These concerns are intertwined pretty heavily. Definitely. One of the things that I think about when I think about diverse cropping and diverse agriculture uh, in the context of climate change is also there's a there's a resiliency if you're not betting uh, every season on one or two uh, main staple commodity crops. If you have many different things going on, some things might not do that well that, that year, but some other ones do. And being resilient is part of the advantage of this way of going about things. Yeah. That's Absolutely. right. And, and the, you know, the ecological benefits of intercropping are a way uh, to add extra attraction, extra value to diversifying cropping systems and kind of re-diversifying from an economic standpoint what individual regions are doing rather than having agricultural production be very specialized to different parts of the country yeah, or the world. As we start to wrap up, what might be something that people can do to get involved with the Land Institute to learn more? Where might you send them mm -hmm. these days? Yeah, so I would send them uh, to our website, landinstitute.org. They can, uh, you know, can then be guided through to social media, to uh, to videos, uh, to our popular and scientific format papers. What I would especially encourage people to do, and this is where this diverges a little bit from kind of the standard sustainable ag interview, you know, normally uh, we're, you know, we'd be saying things like, uh, well, you really need to go buy this, right? Uh, you need to go buy certified organic products in your local grocery store or look for this on the label. What we, with this kind of long range transformative view to perennialize agriculture, to radically diversify agriculture, what we need to do uh, is for people to talk, to use this, this great ability of speech and conversation that distinguishes us uh, for, for good or ill from uh, all of the other species on the planet. If anybody here thinks that this is an important vision uh, for the future of the planet, they need to spread the word about what they think, you know, whether it's their neighbors, whether it's their legislators, uh, whether it's their colleagues at work. Uh, we need a broad-based movement around perennializing agriculture, around society making a commitment to resourcing this, you know, this most important project since the one 10,000 years ago that created agriculture. We are a highly interconnected uh, society today. And uh, so even if any one individual person may not think of themselves as somebody who's a huge leverager of resources and action, 
everybody is within a few degrees of, of somebody who is a huge leverager of resources and action. So talk about what your dreams are for the future. And if they include perennializing agriculture, um, make sure to say so. Well, hopefully uh, that becomes the dream of at least a few listeners here. Thank you both so much for being with us. If you enjoy the show, please give us a good review on your podcast app. Tell your friends also. Uh, share the dreams of Nori as well. We want to reverse climate change. We want to perennialize agriculture. All great things to be doing. And thank you for listening. All right. Thanks for coming to Salina. <laughs> Our we'll pleasure. We'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back. <laughs>